You're listening to Under One Roof, a Covenant House Vancouver production. Under One Roof is your opportunity to hear conversations with subject matter experts on a variety of social justice and public policy issues. Covenant House Vancouver is dedicated to serving all youth with absolute respect and unconditional love, helping youth experiencing homelessness and protecting and safeguarding all youth in need. And now, Under One Roof. Welcome to Under One Roof, a Covenant House Vancouver production. My name is Chelsea Minhas, and I will be your host for today's episode. This month, we are joined by Guy Falicella. Guy grew up in a middle-class home in Richmond, but fell into addiction at a young age. Guy spent 30 years in the repeated cycle of gangs, addiction, treatment, and jail. He spent nearly 20 years residing in a two-block radius in the downtown east side and using many resources, including harm reduction, to keep himself alive. Today, Guy has escaped the grips of turmoil that kept him suffering and resides in Surrey with his wife and three young children, with many years of recovery and sobriety under his belt. Guy is passionate about advocating for the vulnerable people who still suffer with substance use and educating communities on harm reduction to eliminate the stigma that exists around it. Guy has a career with Vancouver Coastal Health, BC Centre for Substance Use, and the Ministry of Mental Health and Addiction, in addition to attending various school districts to educate students on substance use and harm reduction. He is using his experience to change the hearts and minds of people in relation to substance use. He is a respected voice in the community, and we are so grateful to have him with us today. Welcome to the program, Guy. Thanks, Chelsea. Thanks for having me. So I'm hoping that we can have a really great conversation about substance use and harm reduction and some of the policies and things that are holding us back in our community. So I thought we could start with telling us and our listeners a little bit about your line of work and how you became involved in it and how you became such a meaningful advocate for harm reduction. Yeah, no, um, I, I mean, the work that I do today, I'm, you know, I'm humbled by the, the journey, obviously, of, of, of being where I am today. And, and, you know, it took a, a lot of support and a lot of people to get me here. Obviously, uh, you know, I've been, uh, you know, an advocate from harm reduction when it didn't exist. And really, our society looked upon uh, people, especially in the downtown east side areas, disposable. Um, and, you know, we push for... You know, basically it was drug users taking care of each other because nobody else did. And that's kind of where harm reduction started to grow, uh, especially in Vancouver. You know, I can remember, you know, uh, being arrested for carrying harm reduction supplies or being looked upon as uh, breaking the law or criminal for accessing harm reduction. I mean, you know, really what it what it did in, in my life was it, it, it kept me alive, uh, obviously, the health complications that could come without having harm reduction services, such as uh, HIV, hepatitis C, uh, you know, and, and other uh, septic, osteomyelitis, endocarditis, just other uh, infections that come from, you know, using um, 
you know, dirty syringes. Uh, and so, you know, I remember a dark time in, in, the in the province of British Columbia, especially in the nineties where, you know, especially in the downtown core where, uh, one in four were, um, contracted HIV AIDS. We had an overdose crisis in the nineties that I, that I'd lived through as well. Um, you know, I've survived five osteomyelitis bone infections, four in my left leg, one in my back where I had to relearn how to walk again. And, you know, being brought back to life six times really, you know, um, without that, uh, I wouldn't even be here today. Not only that, but the concept of me even getting to where I am today wouldn't exist. My kids wouldn't exist. Um, you know, the, the life that I have today is all, all seriously because of it. And, and, and really, um, in the world that we live in today, we often forget, um, that harm reduction is really about, you know, caring about people. Um, you can't tell somebody to, to not use substances that doesn't work. And if it did, then we wouldn't be where we are today. And so you have to look at other ways. Um, and so accessing or having harm reduction facilities really is a place that becomes welcoming for an individual to not feel judged. And that's what I always felt when, you know, I would go to Insight. Um, I use that facility, just that specific facility in the downtown east side over 4,000 times since 2003 when it opened till 2013. And I never overdosed once. Um, in the decades that I used drugs, except in 2012 and 2013, where I had to be brought back to life six times because the drug supply started to change. And as we all know today, it's gotten increasingly worse. And, you know, we have six people dying every day. Um, and I also like to remind people that in 98, when the overdose crisis was declared in 98, there were 400 deaths. And that was unacceptable. And then as you look into 2016, um, you know, 900 and then over 1,000. Now we're at 2,000. It's like, you know, at what point in society do we say that, uh, you know, we need to make these services more applicable, not just to adults, but especially to youth. Uh, we're having more youth dying today, more youth using drugs. It's not the same as when I was using substances. Now there's an alarming thing that people can die by using them. And so, you know, in a perfect world, yeah, we wish we didn't need to use drugs to feel the way we feel or to, to numb or to, to get by or to relax or to fit in, but we do. And so, especially um, in this day and age, it's, you know, people need the proper information, but they also need the proper support. So harm reduction can be a pretty loaded phrase for a lot of people. A lot of people make assumptions about it. At Covenant House, we talk a lot about harm reduction is more than just handing out a needle. It's really about a set of principles. It's a way that we engage with the young people that come in. So how would you define harm reduction? What does harm reduction mean to you? I mean, really simply, it just means that you care. Um, you know, I'm already struggling. I don't need you to tell me how to run my life. I just need some support with where I'm at. And, you know, harm reduction is really a practice and a principle and a concept of knowing to meet somebody where they're at, not telling them that you're doing it wrong, but going there and getting to that place. It takes, it's almost like, you know, maybe harm reduction is more of uh, emotional intelligence. Oh, I like that. I like that. You, you connect and you have these phases where you're connecting with the person and they keep coming back and you keep talking and now they feel comfortable. Now they start opening up, sharing their story. 
And when they start sharing their story, you start to understand what the person's gone through. And then you have a little bit more of your, you know, your own beliefs, whatever they are, they, they go down a little bit because now you understand. And that connection um, is so powerful. Like it kept me, that's what kept me going is that connection with people. And when you have that and you can get in and you can understand a story of somebody, that's what inspires somebody to change. And what changes people's lives isn't you telling me what to do. It's opportunity. When you give people opportunity or a moment where there's an opening door and then there's an opportunity, that builds purpose. And with purpose, builds life. And everybody in our life, we need purpose. Otherwise, if we don't have that, then what do we really have? So harm reduction is really about relationship and opening opportunities to plant those seeds, to let these young people know that they're worth it and that they do have choices and that we're really willing to walk alongside them in their journey. Yeah. I often describe it to people too. It's like, I don't support harm reduction over recovery and I don't support recovery over harm reduction. I support people. Well, I don't get that confused. Somebody comes up to me and they, they want access to harm reduction service. I help them. I don't judge them. And if somebody wants to get off drugs, I help them. I don't judge them. I don't say it's wrong. It's their journey. I'm just kind of the taxi driver that tries to get them around. And if we all were taxi drivers to drive people around to get them the supports that they need, we transform lives. And we need more taxi drivers. We need a lot. We yes. need more taxi drivers. So what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions around harm reduction? What What's the stigma around it? I mean, where do you go? I mean, obviously, I think people reflect to that, you know, it's breaking the law. You know, you're doing things that are obviously some parts of society doesn't believe is socially acceptable. Um I think one of the the biggest stigmas around it is that it enables people to continue along the path. That's which, one I hear a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's probably the biggest misconception of harm reduction. I was always like, look, I was already deep entrenched before harm reduction even came into my life. I was hiding from you because of how you viewed me as a person and pointed fingers. So I'm off using under a bridge or in the, in the bushes somewhere where nobody can see me. And we still, that's what, you know, uh, honestly, if we, I don't blame people for how they think. I do blame you for not educating yourselves on the realities in today's age, because if you don't change, then you're really complicit with allowing people to continue. Um, and we push this now to the younger generation already. And if we're going to keep doing that, um, you know, more people will die. How can we be a part of the solution? How do we get people educated? Yeah, I think, you know, awareness, um, understanding personal stories, uh, such as mine, many others, um, hearing from youth themselves, you know, like if somebody keeps coming back to using a service, especially if it's, you know, harm reduction, uh, and they continue to, it's that journey, you know, I was a youth in the downtown East side. I, like I grew up here and there wasn't as much as there was today. Um, but man, I remember they had a drop-in center and it was a harm reduction facility and it was on Hastings street. 
and he could show up there. They would open the doors at 8 a.m. and they would have boxes of cereal and milk out. And you would pour a big bowl in a baking dish and you would eat the whole bowl of cereal and you'd sleep on the couch until four o'clock. And then it would wake you up. And this was seven days. This was my life. But the meeting the youth workers there is what really changed my life. Like they were always there to support me. You know, they woke me up. You know, they told me like, hey, we're, we're open tomorrow. And I know it's tough for you to be out there, but. You know, that was just connecting with them is kind of the, there's that trust thing that happens. And that's what we're all trying to do. You have to, you can't just walk into somebody's lives and just kind of, you know, break it down for them. You have to let them be comfortable explaining it to you. And that's what harm reduction did for me. Because I tell you when that supervised consumption site opened up and they were asking me like, what's your name? I was like, well, why do you need my name? They're like, well, we, we don't need your name. We'll take any name. And I was just like, really like, because of how people have viewed it for so long, you just, you're trying to figure out as a person, I was just trying to figure out you. And yeah. so when you have a service, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Okay. So who are you? Okay. I know you do this, but who really are you? And sometimes we don't share that stuff with people. And when you share a little bit of your part of your life with others, that's powerful, especially, you know. We all struggle. Yeah. Let's share it a little bit. So you talked about the supervised consumption site and there's been some controversy over that sort of public policy as well. So what do you think about the current state of drug policy in BC and Canada and what needs to change? Well, I mean, all of it, you know, it really needs to, we, we really need to look at like the history of drug policy and where it's come from. And if you look at it just right here in Vancouver, the Opium Act, which was uh, really drug policy is, is racist towards, uh, you know, especially in, in British Columbia, you know, opium was a, a legalized drug uh, and Chinese immigrants that came here to Canada to work. And build a better life. They used it. White people drank it. And, um, you know, this is where the war on drugs really was born out of uh, because white people were more fearful that Chinese immigrants would take their jobs. So they came up and devised this plan, you know, to outlaw ban smokable opium, but leaving the liquid opium so white people can continue to drink it. And so when you actually look back at that laws and policies, you realize how racist that is. And so, you know, today, those policies are still in place. And that isn't born out of health concerns. That's born out of racism. And yet, those policies still exist today. We really need to start naming that sort of stuff. Right. Talking about it. And it's very uncomfortable, right? It, yep. it, it is. It's, I mean, you know, anybody that's ever come to Canada... Um, from other parts of the, of the world have dealt with, you know, racism, uh, and especially, uh, especially here with our indigenous population. I mean, literally like our racist policy still exists today. And that's why I always say to people, it's like, educate yourself on those policies and then talk to me because you realize that, wow, they're still in place today. And I, when I do talks in high schools and I explain this to youth, they actually come up to me and say they had no idea 
And they even asked me, did my, do my parents know this? And I said, well, I mean, maybe. But it's not taught. It's not taught in schools. This no. Isn't something you hear about. Yeah. Well, schools are, some schools are starting. But really, when you break it down, um, even kids say to me, so if those policies were racist and put in in the 1800s, and why would the government still allow those policies to continue today and I always say to the youth I'm like that's a question you should ask every politician and because I always tell youth when I see them I'm like when I walk into do a talk with youth I'm I immediately tell everybody I say I'm hoping I'm talking to you know the future prime minister or the future CEO of a massive company somebody doing something somewhere and hopefully this talk inspires you to create change, especially even the workplace. I mean, you know, I had a 16 year old kid talk about stigma. I said, drug users aren't bad people. They just have challenging circumstances. A lot of them have challenging circumstances. And he came up to me after the talk and he said, uh, my dad died in 2020 of an overdose. I don't tell people that because of how people talk about it. And, uh, he said, but my dad was a good person. And he loved me and he had his challenges, but I know he loved me. I was just like about to lose it. Yeah. Like, I mean, and I, I, I gave him a hug and I said, dude, yeah, your dad loved you. And he just said, I just really appreciate you saying that a small thing in his life, but that stigma we've passed on to him. This is a 16 year old boy that's carrying that shame now because of how we view things. Because we often assume that harm reduction will, you know, when you see downtown Vancouver, people think, well, look what harm reduction's done. That's an unaddressed poverty issue. Those are two separate issues. And so often we collide everything and scapegoat harm reduction. Harm reduction is only limited on its capacities of what it can actually do because of our laws and policies. And so they're always colliding. I was having a conversation with a young person recently in one of our programs about harm reduction. And they said to me, they actually brought up that our policies are also classist. It's not just racist because they, they explained to me, they said, Chelsea, what's the difference between opening a overdose prevention site for young people and having a bar college kids can go to a bar have their drinks, and essentially it's a supervised consumption site, right? But we've made value judgments about certain substances in our communities that creates that stigma and perpetuates that stigma and perpetuates these deaths, essentially. Yeah. So how can, what can we do better? What, what do we need to change? Well, I mean, what we need to do is we need to have uh, services that are available to meet the needs of people. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, 16 or 50. Um, people need to have access to those services. And people don't need to be, you know, shamed for accessing those services. You know, um, we really need it all. Uh, but we don't have is a full continuum of care. If you actually think about it too, with illicit substances and people that use them, everybody's saying, well, if you use illicit drugs, you just have to, you have to get off them. And I'm kind of like, well, um, or everybody's addicted to them. 
And then I would say, well, then anybody that walks into a liquor store, do we look at them like they're a dick? Whoa, look at them. They're going in the liquor store. You got to have a, well, that's bad. You got to get off that stuff. But we don't because that's socially acceptable. And not everything that's socially acceptable is acceptable. Um, you know, so when I see somebody pointing fingers at somebody using illicit substances while they're, you know, have their, their beer or, you know, it's kind of like pot calling the kettle black. Mm-hmm. You know, I see people too at parks that complain about somebody using substances in their park while they have their Starbucks cup with their liquor in it. I'm like, well, you're not doing anything different. You're not allowed to drink here either, buddy. And so those are the things that we just, you know, social acceptance is really one of those things that there's a fine line because uh, what we've done is we've just shamed people. We don't know anything about them. And we just continue to go to this place that, and we often assume that it's just, you know, the homeless population. People are homeless or using drugs when the reality is, is that, you know, 80% of the people die alone and over 60% of them die in private residence. That's a house just like yours. I often tell the media, stop showing pictures of the downtown east side. Show me a suburb and a community. Uh, we have an alarming amount of people who uh, use drugs that have jobs. They don't talk about it. And it's because, you know, in their corporations, listen, because we still go to that place where, guess what? If you have kids and you're using drugs, your kids could be at jeopardy being taken away from you. Um, you could lose your job which would mean you would lose your mortgage or wherever you rent, couldn't pay your house, you could be homeless, all these factors. And so really what we do still in our society is we punish people and go back to those policies that continue to punish people who use substances. And we wonder why nobody reaches out for support or it's very rare. So you mentioned the 80% of people dying alone and happening in the suburbs and That makes me think about how the toxic drug supply and overdose crisis in this province just seems to be getting worse. We're not making progress. We're making these announcements and reviewing the stats every couple of months. But what do you think needs to change in our approach? Because we're doing all of that, but the numbers are just rising every time. I I just saw you on the news the other day talking about the latest numbers and How can we really make a difference in that instead of just getting up there and talking about the increasing numbers all the time? Yeah. I I mean, listen, like, you know, I think what happens is the drug supply on the street changes so fast and so rapidly. And our response to that is very slow. And so when you as long as you have that, it will continue to um continue to rise and so what we do need is a full system of care which is something we don't have we have kind of these little pockets of care but we don't have like a a wide spectrum and so you can't sacrifice telling people to get off drugs and build more recovery initiative stuff while taking away from the the harm reduction aspect of it so you, you need to have both and i've always said it is in my life, it was kind of like the baton being passed, like a relay race. You know, all be on the same team, going in the same direction. And when I was done, wanted help to try to, you know, change my life or get off drugs, um, you could pass that 
onto the recovery aspects of things. And so we just don't have that connecting dots. And obviously, too, with the drug supply getting increasingly toxic with benzodiazepines, now to even access a detox service, um, you know, takes weeks. And you have to go to a medical detox because you need to be medically supervised when you're coming off of benzos because you could die. And so when you actually think that backs the system, and then if somebody does want to go to treatment, then it could be two to six weeks to get into treatment. And then treatment doesn't change the other aspects of people's lives. Uh, You you know, like I was good at going to treatment. Like I was good. I could do three months, but I wasn't good at translating that into having a better life. And that's just because we expect people to all go to treatment, but then we don't give anybody purpose. Where's the, where's the companies out there in our society? Like, and I'll call them out, Amazon, Hudson's Bay, Talus. I don't care who you are. If you have a corporation, why aren't you hiring people? Why aren't you, why aren't you doing something? Instead of just you know, pointing fingers at the problem, we're not offering the proper solution. And one of the things that was huge in my life was how do you build a life when you don't know how, when you've had to survive for so long? Like, how do you do that? And if I sat around and waited for the government to actually implement something, I wouldn't be here today. And sometimes you really have to look at it as, you know, I create my own opportunities. And I had an understanding of the system. I did that through the emotional connections, through harm reduction, which I wanted to know what your service is, what you do. How can you help me go further? And can I always come back? And when everybody said yes. You can always come back. That was like, okay, I can, I can dance out of here. So again, it's that relationship piece that we talked about earlier. You talked about needing a continuum of care and the population that we work with at Covenant House is young people, 16 to 24. And for us, we know that youth are a distinct population. You talked about access to detox, and we've recently closed the youth detox in the city. And where do we send these kids? Because we know that they have complex developmental needs, and it's not always the same as an adult. And you were able to take a tour of our facility and get a sense of kind of how we address uh, these sorts of situations with young people. But what are your thoughts around how to apply harm reduction to the youth population, especially young people who are facing multiple barriers in their lives? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, what I'd love to see in a perfect world was would Covenant House operate like a, a small supervised uh, consumption site for youth. I, I think that would go a long, long way in translating and changing the direction of a culture that exists in our society of saying that, you know, Hey, youth shouldn't be using drugs. I'm not saying they should, but what I am saying is that they are, and you're not enabling them, uh, by having one. What you're saying is that we know you've used, but just don't use alone, but we know you probably will. So we hope to see you back at six o'clock tonight. Like that's not really making somebody feel that they're supported. If you had something small like that, it doesn't have to be grand scale. But I'll tell you right now, there's the start. Somebody that comes in here to use that facility, do you know what that youth's saying? I trust you. I know you care. And I'm starting to care about myself because I'm coming here. Instead of using in a back alley 
and tripping out. I'm come here because I feel safe. There's the starting point. It's really creating that sense of unconditional love and absolute respect. Come as you are. We're here with you. And I love the piece you said about the young people beginning to say, Hey, I'm starting to care about myself too. And really that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And I was struggling even, you know, with my own self-esteem issues, my own, you know, um, the verbal abuse that I had dealt with. I can only imagine it's the same, even worse for some of the kids, you know, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, abandonment, pushed off to the side, judged, stigmatized, criminalized, punished. How you feel as a person and how people have viewed you for so long is really like the the thing that just keeps you buried. And you know, have the ability to start trusting people. I couldn't trust anybody. I was more scared of you. And so I'd act out in anger, frustration, because I, I didn't know how to cope. And I was more scared that you were just going to do the same thing that everybody else did, which is just tell me that your problem in life is that you use drugs. And really, the that wasn't the problem. There was a reason why I used them the way I did. And when I look at people who have, you know, chronic substance use disorders, and I immediately don't look at the drugs. I'm like, man, I wonder what this person's gone through in their lives. And how do I... How do I get them to a place where they're comfortable to open up? And that's where I talk about that emotional intelligence with harm reduction. It's a starting point. That's the starting point to talk to somebody to break down the walls. Because people have walls. They're built. They're built for protection. It's not against you. It's not personal. I built walls because I was just trying to protect me. I was trying to protect myself from you because I was scared. And once you get in a little bit, I start to let the walls down. And then the conversation starts. Tell me about your story. You start talking. I start to understand. We start giving different options. Hey, we could do this. We could try this. We could try this. We could try this. What do you think? What would you like to try? Where are you at? And then, boom, that's... uh there's your starting point right there, building a trusting relationship with a person. And that is the transformation that can transform somebody's lives. So what we're talking about is the connection between trauma and substance use. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, the majority of people who do struggle with the substance use disorder, trauma, something, um, I had undiagnosed ADD, um, you know, I was often called hyper difficult and hard to manage in school. I was often compared to other students. Why can't you learn like others? I, I My best response was, you know, when I had to answer that question was, I don't know. And so you carry all that shame. So there's, there's lots of factors, but trauma is definitely, um, and if you think about it, somebody that goes through so much trauma and such a young age of their starting point in life. You know, drugs, because if they're not getting the proper support or not feeling validated or heard or understood, then drugs just actually become drugs, gangs, all of it becomes a reasonable response to underlying issues because nobody's supporting you. 
And so if we don't support people with harm reduction, then if that's not available to them, then why would they come here? Or why would they, you know, maybe they'll access it for a bed every now and then. But where's the emotional connection to the person? And how do you get there? And so, especially today, with everything that's going on in our world, with COVID, anxiety, depression, you know, suicide, the trauma, you often think that uh, a lot of our youth are, are using substances, and, and it's true, they are. So looking back on your life and as a young person who accessed the area Covenant House is in and experienced substance use and trauma, and what would have made a difference for you? What would have been the key things that, looking back, could have made a difference? Well, yeah, you know, obviously, instead of being incarcerated, I wish there was something else. I mean, I spent the majority of my youth in juvenile detention, you know, uh, which just kind of that becomes a revolving door. You become comfortable. I understood what happened when I went to jail now. So I just became like, oh, well, this is easy. Like, you know, this is what they're going to do. OK, and I'll just do it. And so um if there was an alternative outside of that, that would have, I think, really helped also think, I think, which would have been huge in my life is that, uh, you know, if I had access to possible like a trauma therapist at a very early age, that would have been huge. And, you know, in this province, there's no trauma therapy isn't covered under health care. So you have to pay for that, which costs a lot of money. I still pay for it today. But that really what changed things, you know, I, I think when the uh, you know, Gabor Mate was my doctor for many years and he was the guy that finally broke down, like not only, you know, the cracks in the dam were from the emotional connections with people through harm reduction, but he was the one that came in at the end and just kicked it all down. And his response to me was, you know, I just remember it vividly being in detox at, uh, on site on top of the supervised, cons uh, supervised consumption site. And he just said to me, is like, can I ask you a question? So there he's asking, can I ask you something? And I said, sure. And he said, are, are you enjoying yourself? I was just like, no, this sucks. And he said, uh, he says, you know, I don't think your problem is drugs. And I said, well, you be the first person to ever say that to me, because that's what everybody keeps saying. And he says, I think there's a reason why you use them the way you do. And I was like, that was like the bomb. I, didn't get, I just thought this is what I do. You know, and he said, uh, tell me about your childhood. I couldn't. I just broke down, started crying. And then he just put his hand on my shoulder and he just said, hey, we're going to we're going to figure this out. And lo and behold, you know, discovered that I have learning disabilities, you know, which I always thought I was stupid and you don't share that with people. And that gave me the whole pieces of the puzzle where it was like, okay, now I can start putting these things together. But the, the deep rooted trauma that you bury, you know, that you don't talk about with people, you could put me in a room with like 40 other people. I don't tell you a little bit because I can't tell you everything because I'm scared and I don't want you to judge me because I blame that. I think a lot of the times I carried the shame of that uh, I was responsible. And my therapist made it clear to me 
where she just said, you are not responsible for the trauma that you endured as a child. You are responsible to not pass that on. And that, I got that. I, and the hardest thing in my life wasn't getting off the drugs or getting out of the criminal justice system. The hardest thing in my life, and still to this day is, not to pass that on. I think that really speaks to the importance of having that support person and that it can be just that one person that can plant that seed, made that bomb go off for you like Dr. Matei did. And if we have listeners today who have a person in their life who's struggling with substance abuse, what would you say to them? Yeah, obviously, you know, I deal with this quite a bit from families and a family just actually reached out to me about their child struggling with substance use. And I think a lot of the times when it comes from there's family dynamics behind things, I get the desire of what the family wants. You know, you want the best for your child. You want them to get off drugs, all that stuff. That's great. But that often is very challenging and very pushback and conflict there because there's family dynamics behind it. And so I always tell families, it's like, sometimes you just need to, you know, guide people to other services, such as the harm reduction services or recovery initiative services. I don't care what the service is, but if somebody that reflects the, or meets the person where they're at, and you have to understand where a person's at before you meet them where you're at. Mm -hmm. Can't just, you know, and so one of the things I often tell parents, it's like, like, Hey, can't you just try this? Don't tell them every time you see them that they need to go to treatment or they need to do this or they need to get off drugs. It's like, oh my, it's just a bombardment. And that tunes them out because they're not listening anyway. Instead of that, go meet them, take them out for lunch, tell them you love them, tell them you're always there to support them and tell them if you need anything to please call. I'll do my best. Um, and you do that, it changes the conversation, right? So I think a lot of times too, with a substance user, with family dynamics, a lot of shame that the person is carrying as well. So you have to really understand it. It's not like I was going out to, you know, make my family or others feel bad. And I'm sure nobody is. It's just where they're at. It's tough. There's obviously something that, that's missed. They don't talk about for whatever reason, how it started. A lot of the times, too, it's found out, too, with a lot of youth are struggling. They've been bullied. Um, a lot of it, too, sometimes is sexual identity that they're uncomfortable talking about. You know, they're trying to discover who they are. And and sometimes um, when they don't or are afraid to reach out to talk is when the substances become the coping mechanisms. As a service provider a mother, myself, a friend, a leader, what can I do to influence change? I think we need to talk about how can each of us be a part of the solution? How can I be a part of the solution? Right. Well, it's great. There, the leadership is where it has to start. That has to sh trickle down. To the, it can't be from the bottom to get up to the top. The top has to be the one to say, hey, this isn't working. And this is what we're going to do. And I think by leadership is leadership is also not only listening, but it's also doing. And, you know, as, as a leader myself, 
I'll walk the streets. I'll pick up a broom. I'll sweep. I'll show up. I'll do the things that just to, just to show other people like, Hey man, I'm here to show up. Like, how can I help? Uh, I think when you, when you do those things, um, you know, that's because people learn differently. You can be a leader and sit up in your office all day and people, yeah, big deal. But people visually, when they see that, that changes the culture. And so, you know, as a, as a leader, that's what will really transform an organization as well. Is that when somebody sees, you know, maybe the, the leader doing pots and pans in the kitchen, I mean, I'd be like, well, they don't have to do that, but they're doing it because somebody needs some help or some support. And that's where I think we have to be more supportive of each other as, as well, especially with the people, uh, and especially with, with youth is youth admire that more than people ever really know is, uh, you know, a, a brisk high and a quick chat. You know, I always look back at the people and I was like, man, they didn't have to stop. And they stopped and they talked and then it turned into like, I'll buy you a sandwich. If you don't want to come, I'll just come back. You'll be here. Yeah. Okay. okay I'll be back in a few minutes. Buy you a sandwich. Come back. And, and, you know, those are the moments that really reflect in, in people's lives. They remember, people always remember how you made them feel. Uh, that is a big, big, big thing. And so when I've often talked to people who led the way, I just felt like when I was saying something that they were listening. And I had, I had numerous conversations with people at supervised injection sites and, um, telling people where, what I believed I was going to do. And it was funny because, uh, Darwin, Who's the man? Used to be the manager at Insight at the time. We used to have chats. I would I would do my shot of drugs and go into his office and tell him like I'm almost here, buddy. Like I'm close, man. I could feel it. Like I don't want to keep doing this. So I just haven't put it all together. And uh, he reminded me of those conversations a couple of weeks ago, and he actually shared a letter that I wrote. And when I read it. I remember I even said, maybe one day you'll be my boss or maybe one day I'll be your boss. And when I actually said that back then and I was reading and I was just like, I was, my mind was blown. And even the nurse that brought me back to life at the supervised consumption site, February 18th, 2013, Sarah Gill, she was crying when I woke up. And I was like, why are you crying? And she just said, because I care. And I just broke down and started crying. And I was like, I care. Like, it may seem that I don't, but I do care. I don't want to die. And it was a month later, March 18th was the last day that I ever, of that same year, was the last day that I ever used a list of drugs. And I just walked away from everything, built the support network, knew where I needed to go and was driven. And along with supports and people telling me like, you can do this. And I just, they believed. So I believed. You've talked a lot about the supports in your life and how they made such a difference. And we have staff at Covenant House who are, right in the thick of this opioid epidemic, toxic drug supply, and um, experiencing the loss and providing naloxone provision. And 
really feeling like your nurse Sarah did and crying because they care. Is there anything you would say to the people who are working the front line, doing the really tough work day in and day out who, you know, what would you say to them? Well, thank you. Like, you know, you're the, you're the, you're the most important piece. Like you really are. You're the one that uh, is building the relationships, building the connections, making them feel comfortable, advocating for proper services. Um, you know, even here, like, uh, even when I did my tour here, it's very welcoming. Um, you know, you can feel it. It's a feeling. That's what you have to remember. Not a bunch of rules, but it's a feeling that people will get when they come here. You have to create that feeling and that's created by culture and environment. And that starts from the front line, but it starts right to the top. It has to be everywhere. You know, when you walk down the hallway or how many times will you go through your life, do you often neglect to say hi to people? I mean, it's just kind of one of those things like we we get people call us, say hi, check in, text you. You know, you could text somebody. A lot of people that doesn't happen. And so stopping when you see somebody, you know, and saying hi. When I walk in the downtown east side, sometimes it takes me an hour to walk a half block. And uh, even my boss from work is like, oh, he just talks to he'll just talk to everybody. Everybody wants to talk. I'm like, yeah, because. There's so many people that want to talk about other things, but nobody's talking. And so that's just what I think you're, and I know it's stressful for, for people that work here. You're, you're developing a relationship with people. It's a connection. And, it's, you know, and sadly, uh, sometimes that gets, their lives get cut short and that impacts us. And so we have to make sure that we're okay too. You know, self-care and is one of those aspects of people at work. You have to create that environment too, you know, like where people are able to like, you know, take a break, you know, take an extra break, um, you know, just to, just to feel grounded again, just to feel supported and cared for because, you know, trauma impacts each of us differently. And when you build a, you know, a connection, um, you know, like I, I built a, a friendship with a kid that was, uh, he died when he was 17. And, um, you know, we were, I, I, he was in treatment and I met him when, when he was in sobriety and he, he relapsed and came downtown and he found me and he wanted help and I was helping. And, and he, you know, sadly, that's just the one guy that, uh, the help never came and the drug supply took them. And that's why I fight. I fight for, for Jeremy. And I never forget that, uh, that kid showed up every day. Um, and he always wanted a hug before he left. And I always gave him one. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the stuff that, uh, that's, that's the hardest part about doing this. I've witnessed a lot of death in my life. Um, and that's the hard part of this is that I have to, you know, we have to continue. And so one life loss is just too much. And especially someone so young and so beautiful. And so we just have to, we have to remember that and we have to make sure that we're good because I know a lot of people are good at helping others and not so good at helping themselves. 
And in this work, you really have to make sure that you're ticking those boxes. Absolutely. I feel like we could talk all day. I have so much more that I think we need to learn from you, Guy. And I'm hopeful that this is just the beginning of a relationship between Guy and Covenant House. Some of the things that really stuck out for me today are when you talked about harm reduction as emotional intelligence. I think that is an amazing way to look at it. And I hope you don't mind. I'm going to steal that (laughs) phrase. Um, And really the importance of understanding that this is about relationship. This is not about enabling. This is about reducing stigma and saving lives. And yes, the hardest part about this job is the loss we experience and the death. And that's a great reminder that we need to keep good care of ourselves as well. But I think that loss and that pain is also the motivation that keeps you and I going in this work because one life is too many and we need to do better. Is there any one last thing you want to leave our listeners with today? I mean, just that, uh, you know, um, you know, we have to look at changing because I will tell you this, that the drug supply isn't going to change. It isn't going to miraculously go back to what it used to be. It will continue to progress and continue to get worse. And so that supply and the illicit market won't change. So us as people have to change. We have to look back and say that what we've done is... Uh, those incremental steps have been, you know, and where I've honestly, where I've seen harm reduction start to where it is today, there's a lot more people very supportive of it. And we just need to keep pushing forward and doing things that often might seem super radical aren't so radical at all. It's about caring. And, you know, that's um, what I hope every listener takes from this is that uh, harm reduction is just about you know that caring connection emotional intelligence that builds opportunity to transform people's lives and like I said in my own life if it didn't exist I wouldn't exist my kids wouldn't exist and the life that I have today wouldn't exist and so people don't recover when they're gone and so we always have to remember that and with uh, Covenant House and myself with a relationship, you guys can have me back here uh, anytime. Happy to help. I really think that's an important point you just made around they cannot recover if they're gone. And so we need to do what we can to support these young people that are coming through our doors or that will come through our doors one day. Guy, I'm so grateful that you are here today. The work you are doing is making such a difference. And our community is better because you are here. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the end of this episode of Under One Roof. I'd like to thank my guest, Guy Felicella. And if you have any feedback on today's episode or suggestions for future topics, please email us at publicaffairs at covenanthousebc.org. Until next time, I'm Chelsea Minhas. You've been listening to Under One Roof, a Covenant House Vancouver production. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, please email us at publicaffairs at covenanthousebc.org. For more information on Covenant House Vancouver or to make a donation, please visit our website at www.covenanthousebc.org. Until next time, thanks for listening.